Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sennett, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Richard, this is really the first time that you and I have talked. Our, our last broadcast came right on the heels of Donald Trump winning the presidential election, but we hadn't had the chance at that point to see sort of president-elect Donald Trump in action. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks now, and a, a number of issues have cropped up in that time that I'd be interested in getting your take on. And why don't why don't we start with this one? I mean, you and I talked several times throughout the course of the campaign about the the misgivings that you had about Trump as a candidate and the misgivings that you had about Trump as a potential president. Uh, many of which came down to, I think, the issue that disturbed a lot of people, which was temperament. And over the last couple of weeks, um, in one sense, we've seen Trump a little bit more reserved than we had prior to that, sort of staying off center stage by and large. But there are also hints of the old, <laughs> the old Donald Trump in there, um, you know, picking fights with the, the cast of Saturday Night Live and the cast of Hamilton from his Twitter account. So a couple weeks in, uh, what do you make of Donald Trump's attempt to adopt at least some version of a presidential disposition? Well, I mean, it's clearly, I think, above expectations, but he still lets himself get baited all the time by people who say things that he finds personally objectable, objectionable. And I think the right response is he could find them as objectionable as he wants, but the question he always has to ask himself is, do you do yourself any good when you take after somebody, even if you're right? And most of the time, you don't. So uh, Don Michael Pence, when he had to face this particular question, said, well, this kind of Bedlam is what free speech is about and shrugged it off and went on. And he comes out looking very good and the president-elect uh, starts looking not so good. So on that point, I do think that he has gotten himself into some trouble. He also evidently had a private session with many newspaper reporters where he let them have it about the way in which he thought the coverage was taking place. Again, I think he has a substantive point, but just when you're a president-elect, you don't make these points. You're trying to win friends. You're not trying to basically open up old grievances. He had a subsequent meeting with the New York Times, which seems to have gone better. And there's no question that most of the public statements that he has made have been on the more statesman-like and prudential side relative to everything that we've seen before. And I think if you start looking at the cabinet and the kind of expectations that people have, uh, there are people who obviously dislike some of these choices more than others. Uh, but I have not heard too many people who think that this is you know, a, a catastrophe in the making. I think most of these appointments are pretty solid. Uh, it seems as though he has a pretty good sense of uh, domestic deregulation, which I think is the most important thing. The stuff which I think is going to be most uncertain are twofold. One is this Putin affection I think will lead him to no good. Uh, the man is a scoundrel and has to be treated as such, and alliances with him are, I think, open invitations to disaster. And secondly, I think he has to be extremely careful about the conflict of interest questions. He can't go around wearing two hats, being president of the company and president of the United States, and has to do, much like the Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg had to do, find an effective separation of the stuff that he does as the uh, president from his business concerns by turning over the management to somebody else, preferably, I think, almost necessarily somebody who is not inside his family. This was actually the next question that I was going to present you with because you mentioned that sit-down that Trump had with the New York Times uh, yesterday. It's the day before we're taping this. And he said in the course of that conversation on this issue about the business assets, look, 
you know, the American people knew what they were getting. They knew I was this successful businessman who had all these properties put together. Why is everybody so surprised? He's basically sounded a note of maybe not quite defiance because if anything, he seems to be trying to downplay this. But Richard, I mean you gave us sort of a sense there of what the prudential course would be. What about legal constraints? What, what sort of legal restrictions is he under, if any, as president of the United States when it comes to this question of you know, sort of potential double dealing really? The first thing I want to do is to comment on the remark that you said the people of the United States knew when they were getting into. He didn't get 50% of the votes and many of the people knew exactly what they were getting into and they were frightened to death of the possibility um, that he would engage in these kind of conflict of interest transactions. And he's no longer the president simply of the people who voted for him. He's the president of everybody in the United States, including those people who objected strongly to his presence. And this is the kind of an issue where majority rule doesn't matter. Um, it's the kind of issue where it turns out protection of minority rights is much more important. And he has to, in my judgment, really take rather strong steps to make sure uh, that the critics do not go after him. Prudentially, I think it's also important because anything he does in the future, if he doesn't create a sufficient separation, will give rise to extensive second-guessing by all sorts of people, which will undercut the effectiveness of his policy. Now, in terms of the question of conflicts of interest and illegality, I think it's two ways in which to look at it. One is sort of a general matter of corporate and business law. All of these things, all of these offices always have a clear conflict of interest provision associated with their operation. The maxim is you can't serve two interests and two masters. If, in fact, you're taking care of your own business, you're not taking care of the United States. Uh, The question is, can you find specific prohibitions on this? And probably the answer, unless there's some specific statute of which I'm not aware, probably it's going to be in the negative. Um, Most of the organizations that have found this is a serious problem, and this is commonplace with hospitals and universities and corporations now, what they've done is explicitly strengthen their conflict of interest provisions, often to the point of excess, excess. but in this particular case, it's surely not excess. And so I I think what the president has to understand is a lot of uncertainty here. He starts playing hardball on that particular issue. Uh, A lawsuit by any one of the dissidents could really upset him for a loop, and the last thing we need to do is to have a president who's distracted by a conflict of interest issues where on the moral side he's surely in wrong and maybe well be wrong on the legal side as well. So I think from every single point of view he has to back off of this position. There's a somewhat related um, legal issue, I guess related in the sense that it's we're sort of on, in uncharted territory here with the Trump administration, but there are these um, federal prohibitions on nepotism as far as who's serving the president. It seems pretty clear at this point that Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is in line for a pretty serious portfolio at the White House, and they're saying that he could get around these kind of prohibitions by not taking a salary in that position, but then when you, when you consider that argument, there are these prohibitions in the law against people serving in these positions even if they're not taking the salary. So, I mean, Richard, what kind of legal ground are they on with this, and is, is it something that people would be justified in being a little concerned about? Well, I'm very concerned about it, and it seems to me that no matter how able the son-in-law, and I think he's supposed to be a pretty able guy – Um, The fact that he's family means that he's caught by the conflict of interest prohibition. I don't think there's a single conflict of interest provision anywhere in the Internal Revenue Code or in any of the ethics documents that they see which says that you just have to divest. If there are people who are likely to do your bidding, they have to divest and get themselves out of control as well. 
The issue of a salary in this context, I think, is something of a joke. Um, nobody cares about the money that he's being paid or not paid. What they cared about is the quality of decisions he's going to make and the question of whether or not the Trump brand and the Trump organization is going to be first on the list or whether it's going to be the people in the United States. So I have always taken a pretty tough interest on actual conflicts of interest. I don't take the same view if I think they're going to be remote or impracticable. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to say that the president of the United States could not deal with any foreign affairs issues because he knows he has properties in, in blind trust all around the world. Um, at that particular point, he can't function at all. So what you do is you try to get the low-hanging fruit, and then for the rest of it, you hope that the people who advise him remind him to be very cautious, take a lot of caution about dealing with those things which may give rise to the appearance of bias. Being the president of the United States is a big deal, and I have the funny sense that Donald Trump, when he ran for the office, had no idea of the enormity of the task that he was going to face. This is not like running the Trump organization. You've got many different kinds of cross-currents in here, and it's several orders of magnitude more complicated. And I hope he realizes this and comes to the conclusion that there's no possible way in which he could try to do two jobs. The one job for which he was elected is quite enough. Of the appointments that we know of at this point, which isn't many at the cabinet level, the day that you and I were recording this, we've heard a name for Secretary of Education and, and UN Ambassador. Prior to that, the only one we had was Attorney General, and that's going to be Senator Jeff Sessions from Alabama, who was the earliest supporter in the upper chamber of Trump. And Richard, one of the things that we're going to be hearing a lot about probably reading the tea leaves from Senate Democrats during the Sessions confirmation is the process that resulted in Sessions not getting – a seat on the federal bench uh, during the Reagan administration. How how fair of a criticism is the fact that the Senate turned him down once before? Give us some illuminate that process for us. Well, I think that that's actually a totally insupportable criticism. People can disagree with Senator Sessions on all sorts of substantive issues, but they do have to remember that a Republican and not a Democrat ran the office. Uh, but back in 1986, I guess this was after the Democratic party took control of this and Biden was the big man. Uh, he went after a lot of people. Uh, for example, he went after a, a good friend of mine, the late Bernie Segan, and he was attacked as being scurrilous, irresponsible, having views that were wide outside of the mainstream, being completely unsuitable for public office. You know, this guy sort of thought about the world in much the way in which I did. And I remember taking a lot of exception to the fact uh, that they took an academic and they really hold him out to dry. And, you know, later on, they did the same thing to Lillian Bevere, a professor at the University of Virginia, who's an extremely able woman. And one got the sense that the only reason they were going after these people is because they were qualified for the office. And the Democrats did not want to see intelligent and strong-willed Republicans in judicial position. And the stuff that was raised against Session was a kind of innuendo about certain kinds of racial insensitivity. And you might as well say, well, he was born in Alabama, so we know that that's got to be true. But if you actually look around and try to figure out what his record is since that time, um, it's been pretty aggressive in prosecuting various members of the Ku Klux Klan, getting, I believe, in a death penalty in one case. There was a letter recently in the New York Times by Larry Thompson, who is a Republican, uh, but a black man, and he worked with Session, roomed with him in hotels when they were on the road, and he says there's not an ounce of racist sentiment in anything that he does. And to me, to allow sort of scattered bits of information from 30 years ago to even be introduced into the um, confirmation process is, I think, a very, very dangerous kind of precedent. Uh, to me, the key issue in this particular situation is, does this man have experience and does he have some kind of ability? I think the answer on both of those questions is unconscionably 
is uncontroversially yes. And so if the fact that Democrats don't like him uh, is a sufficient reason to block it, uh, then we'll never have an attorney general. It's very clear that the Democratic Party is on its heels. It is broken between its sort of centrist wing and its left wing. It could not make serious inroads in either the Senate or the House. It lost ground in the state elections on down-ticket kinds of items. It's an ideological disarray at this particular point in time, and I don't think it's appropriate for them to try to block this particular nomination. So my view is he goes forward with the nomination. I'm pretty sure it will be confirmed. If the Democrats try to filibuster it, I suspect that the Republicans might exercise the nuclear option and the Democrats will live to rue the day. So we've been talking a lot about personnel and procedure. Let me close you out today on a couple of more substantive policy issues, the first of which is that we've learned in the last couple of days President-elect Trump saying that he is not particularly interested in pursuing any legal action against Hillary Clinton. Now, it's still you know, a determination that's going to be made uh, outside of his office, and we still have sort of open questions about the Clinton Foundation apart from the email issues. But Richard, uh, what do you make of this? Is this the magnanimous approach, or is he actually letting her off the hook a little too easily? Well, I think he's doing the right thing, even though he is letting her off the hook. The last thing, <laughs> Fair enough. Do, the last thing we need to do under these circumstances is to have something which could easily be construed as a vendetta against Mrs. Clinton, who lost the election, and which will then be a massive distraction from every substantive program that you want to put forward. Um, as far as going after the foundation, it's obviously a larger target. Uh, my current impression is I probably don't want to attack them either. I think that the penalty they're going to pay is a rather rapid drop in contributions from people who are trying to get access into the State Department, punishment enough. And I certainly don't think it would be a wise thing to go after Mrs. Clinton's aides. It's not that I think that they're innocent. I think that the case on this thing was actually stronger in the opposite direction. Um, but to me, the prudential consequences absolutely dominate any dispute that one has with respect to the liability. In fact, I think there's a possible chance that President Obama will pardon one and all. This will only work at the federal level. Um, but if, in fact, something does take place at the state level, where, of course, the pardon and the federal government has nothing to do with it, um, I think that's just something you have to live with. But I would be kind of doubtful to think that any state attorney general of either party would be wanting to pick this thing up. Um, it is a case that having lost the election, she gets this as a collateral benefit. I know many of his supporters are rather bitter about all of this stuff. But I think in this particular case, the president has shown the right degree of prudential behavior. And if he keeps making tough decisions like this, then maybe he will be able to shed the reputation that he goes very easily off the handle. So the last thing that I'll ask you, there was this YouTube video released earlier this week in which President-elect Trump was laying out the four or five issues that he was going to be focusing on from the outset. There was a lot of attention to it, paid to it on the basis of what was not in the video. There was not talk about the border wall with Mexico, for instance. But, Richard, the very first thing in that video was Trump saying that he was going to be withdrawing the United States from the Trans-Pacific Partnership discussions. Uh, this seems to be something that he is sticking with even in the aftermath of the election. What's your reaction to the fact that Trump does seem to be a true believer when it comes to his opposition to international trade? Well, I think it's his most desperate substantive mistake. I don't think he understands the issue. I don't think he understands the political ramifications of the issue either. Uh, the way in which you improve your position in international trade is to make yourself a more effective competitor. It's not trying to shut down the options to competitors who seem to be able to outperform you. And so he has a pretty strong domestic 
um, agenda in place to trying to repatriate capital, lower the corporate taxes, get rid of some of the silly labor regulations. I think many states will go along with that. And that should bring in uh, foreign investment into the United States, set up new plants which will create new jobs for Americans. Uh, when Nikki Haley spoke at the Federalist Society this past week, uh, she talked about exactly that strategy in the state of South Carolina. And it paid very big dividends when they lowered taxes and e- eased regulations. They brought in, she said, five new tire companies in small towns in South Carolina to bring jobs. So I think he ought to concentrate on the domestic front. And he also can't kid himself. Uh, many of the plants that have shut down and have gone to Mexico would have shut down anyway if they didn't go to Mexico or they would have gone to some other American state. Jobs are always created. Jobs are always going to be destroyed in this kind of an economy. And what you try to do is to create the best environment at home rather than put up a protectionist wall that's going to invite all sorts of retaliation and oddly enough make it much more difficult for American companies to export if they can't get the needed inputs for their own goods uh, from trading in a foreign market. So I hope that when he says, I'm withdrawing from whatever it is, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the negotiations, he wants to start these negotiations up against. This is the one issue that can doom him. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. Join us again next week for the next episode. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.